Speaking Candidly with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Schoner, and today I will be talking to my special guest, Brian Cuban, about his 27-year battle with eating disorders. Brian is a Dallas-based attorney, author, and addiction recovery advocate. He has been in long-term recovery from alcohol, cocaine, and bulimia since April 2007. Brian is the younger brother of Dallas Mavericks owner and entrepreneur, Mark Cuban. In Brian's first book, Shattered Image, he chronicles his firsthand experiences living with and recovering from eating disorders. Brian just released his second book, The Ambulance Chaser. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Candace, it's great to be here. The Ambulance Chaser is actually my third book. Okay, uh, thank second... you for correcting that. Yeah, my second book was The Addictive Lawyer. Gotcha. Thank you for making that correction. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Looking forward to a really interesting conversation. Before we get into your third book or your latest book, I want to talk about your struggles with body dysmorphic disorder or BDD. Um, Can you explain to the audience what is body dysmorphia and how old you were when you first discovered you had this disorder? Sure. Body dysmorphic disorder is a... uh... DSM-5 diagnosis, it is on the obsessive-compulsive disorder spectrum. It affects about 1% to 2% of the population, men and women equally. It's often stereotyped as a woman's disorder. And in the most basic terms, it's when someone uh, perceives a small or even non-existent defect in their body and exaggerates it in their perceived reflection to the point where it affects their ability to function, quote-unquote, normally in life. Uh, People get hundreds of thousands of dollars in plastic surgery. People imagine that they have disfigured faces. People, uh, all kind. it it correlates strongly with uh, eating disorders. It correlates strongly with addiction and suicide. So it's really not just about the body appearance. Um, It can be your face, it sounds like. It can be any part of your appearance. Is that correct? Correct. Body dysmorphia is more of a generalized term. Uh, and not the actual clinical diagnosis, which is body dysmorphic this term. term. I try to stay away from body dysmorphia because it's, it's, it's gotten kind of hijacked uh, by a lot of people who throw it out and say I'm body dysmorphic and things like that, when the actual diagnosis is very, a very serious disorder that is hard to treat. Well, I'm going to read an excerpt from your book, um, and then I want you to talk about it on the other side. Becoming obsessed with appearance and allowing that obsession to lead to harmful actions is not a disorder that happens overnight. I did not suddenly wake up one day and hate my image in the mirror. It was a lifelong process of negative experience triggering innate psychological tendencies. So how did this um, basically impact you? Well, you have to start uh, going back to my childhood. I was uh, born and raised in Pittsburgh, PA, the middle of three boys, my older brother, Mark, and I have a younger brother, Jeff. And I was classic middle child syndrome. I uh, was shy, withdrawn, and I internalized everything said too negative about me and wore it as who I was like a skin tight suit. And unfortunately, I had a very difficult relationship with my mom. And I'll tell you a little bit about this, but I want to make it clear to all of your listeners that I do not blame my mother for anything I went through. Parents do not cause eating disorders. Parents do not cause addiction. There is a difference between cause and correlation. 
uh, there was a lot of fat shaming in my home. My mom, I would come home from school and I would say, eat chef or eat ravioli at lunchtime, right out of the can. <laughs> and uh, my mom would come home from selling real estate. She'd see me and she'd say, Brian, if you keep eating like that, you're going to be a fat pig. Now, these were the things my mother's mother said to her. These were the things my great-grandmother, I'm sure, said to my grandmother. Fat shaming in families is often generational in nature. That wasn't my mom's fault. This was the, uh, she was dealing with her own mental health issues. She had a very verbally and mentally abusive relationship with her bipolar mother. So this is nothing I blame her for at all. And there should be no blame. But being a young person, being a you know, tween and not understanding the psychology of it all, I, I obviously grew depressed and I began to eat more chef ravioli and more and I became a bigger brine and a bigger brine. And I trended towards obese and as often happens, excuse me, when kids are uh, when kids are seen as different in school, the bullying started, the fat shaming. Right. Uh, and this all culminated in what I call the day of the gold pants. Very traumatic episode in my lifetime. My brother, Mark, uh, believe it or not, taught disco. <laughs> and he yeah. gave me a, this was back in the Saturday Night Fever era, the mid 70s. And my brother had given me a pair of shiny gold disco pants. Yes, bell bottoms. And they didn't fit me very well. They fit Mark. He wasn't a big guy, but I had to jump up and down, spray the water bottle. My butt looked like 15 cats trying to get out, but I didn't care <laughs> because my brother gave them to me. I love my brother and I wore them to school and the kids bullied me. They fat taunted me. Uh -huh. And, but in, in, in those days before the internet, in my mind, these were the pop, it, my images of popularity were the kids I saw every day in school. And right. So the, in my mind, these were the popular kids, the kids going to the football games, the after school parties, getting their first dates, their first kiss, going to the prom, all of the things that I associated with love and acceptance. And I hung around them and but they and they made fun of me. But I thought that if I hung around enough, the rite of passage of uh, bullying would be over and they would accept me as one of them. But that's not how it works. I'm walking home from school one day with these kids about a mile from my house, wearing my shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants, and they're making fun of them. And they decided that I was just too, quote, unquote, fat to wear these pants. And they physically assaulted me. Wow. They ripped the pants off me, tore them into shreds, and threw them out in a very busy street, went on mm. high-fiving each other like they had done the funniest thing ever, just walking on down the sidewalk. Right down in my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities my, my Pittsburgh Pirates, again, I grew up in Pittsburgh, T-shirt, my kids, tennis shoes, and my tube socks. I went out in the street and gathered up the shreds, covered up my tidy whities and waddled home. People gawked. No one stopped. I got home, and I walked down into our basement. And as I walked down the stairs, I remember the stairs creaked. They were these wooden stairs, and with every creak, I thought my family knew my shame. I thought everyone in the school knew my shame. They would hear it. They were the creaks of shame. And I buried the pants, at the, the what remained of the pants at the bottom of a wastebasket, hoping that would bury my shame, but it didn't. That is not how trauma works. Trauma threads, the body remembers, the body keeps the score, right? Absolutely. It's, so... And it was at that moment, we talk about snapshots of our lives, and we're all basically accumulations of snapshots, right, of trauma and nice experiences and bad experiences. And that was a very traumatic snapshot, the first one, 
that I remember where I started to look at myself differently in my reflection when we talk about when I saw myself differently. When I saw my reflection, all I saw was this huge stomach. And it wasn't a visual delusion. That's not what body dysmorphic dysmorphic disorder is. It was this overwhelming feeling that I was not normal and that I was disfigured in my midsection. And that was what I remember as the beginnings of body dysmorphic disorder. Was it, you know, you mentioned that Mark gave you uh, the pants and was it hard growing up sort of in his shadows? Obviously he wasn't the Mark Cuban who we all know today, but I imagine that he was in pretty good shape. Um, Did you get comparisons with him? Uh, No, not really because he were, my brothers and I are all three to three and a half years apart. We were stair-stepped and uh, we ran in different circles. Mark was out doing his thing, and, uh, and, and in high school, he was, he was in college at 17, very smart guy. So no, there weren't, he had his circles, and, I, and uh, there, re- there really wasn't, that kind of thing didn't start until he became famous. Well, did he know about the gold pants story right uh, when it happened, or did you wait a while to, to share it I didn't tell him? anyone. I didn't tell anyone, what, because to tell anyone would be to admit that I was worthless couldn't stand up to bullies, that I was shameful. And in my mind of a a 13, 14 year old, they wouldn't love me anymore. I didn't tell a soul. I can relate. I just internalized it. Right, I think a lot of us can relate to that, being bullied, um, having body images. Um, We talk about being overweight, but I remember in 1983, singer Karen Carpenter died at like 23, I think from heart failure due to her battle with anorexia. So we tend to think of eating disorders, as you said in the beginning when we were talking about as a female issue, but it's not, is that correct? It it is not. Uh, A minimum, uh, I I haven't looked at the latest stats, but my memory serves me that about 30% or more of all those suffering from eating disorders are in fact male, but only one in 10 will seek treatment. And Karen Carpenter did bring uh, her tragic death brought eating disorders into the pre-digital national spotlight. But you're right, kind of cemented the stereotype as a female disorder. Now, you have to remember that I was dealing with bulimia before she passed away. Mm-hmm. And so I was a freshman at Penn State. This was 1979, moving into 1980. I was binging and purging. I had mm-hmm. no idea what that was an eating, what that meant, right? right. But here's what I did know. Every time I binged and purged, a feeling of kind of peace came over me, a feeling of uh, kind of re- this feeling that, okay, now the next day, everything's going to be okay. Now I will be accepted. Now my mother will love me, uh, which, and she did. She, my mother loved me uh, as mothers love their children, but she was dealing with her own stuff. But, uh, and, but then this, this feeling of shame swept into my gut, like this inflated beach ball, the shame of engaging in an act that I did not have a name for, I did not understand, but I inherently knew was shameful. Guys don't stick their fingers down the throat. Right. It, but I had to have that feeling of peace again and again and again. And that is how my life uh, as a male bulimic looked. Try to um, explain this a little bit further, uh, because I know that I don't think I could do that, put my fingers down my throat to throw up. You say it gave you a sense of peace. Did you feel like you were more in control over this order? Yes. Because you're okay. I was in control of my life. Uh, 
when I binged and purged, and I'm trying not to be graphic because people who could be triggered might be listening to this. Sure. But uh, I when I when I binged and purged, it felt it gave me a short feeling of control over my life. Now I am control of Brian. Now Brian is going to be confident the next day, but that only lasted a few moments, and uh, and so, then the old Brian came back, who the self-loathing Brian. When did you get an, and did you get an official diagnosis and what was that like? My official diagnosis of BDD didn't come until uh, uh, 2000 when I began, uh, when I got honest with my therapist, my psychiatrist about it. And it was a joint exploration diagnosis. He had never heard of it. It is hmm. a very stigmatized diagnosis. And there are actually very few uh, specialists for body dysmorphic disorder in this country. Uh, a lot of people say they treat it, but when they say they treat it, they treat with uh, a lot of the treatments for body dysmorphic disorder are treatments we know about, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, a lot of different things. So the therapist will say they treat it, but people who actually specialize in it are few and far and in between. Well, that would explain why when I went online to do some research that I could not find any, very many resources for getting help. Um, there were a few, but uh, few and far between, unlike some other mental health disorders. Correct. When I began my journey of exploration, uh, someone had recommended a book uh, because I was trying to understand what was going on as well and called The Broken Mirror. So I bought The Broken Mirror and it was written by Dr. Catherine Phillips, promote someone else here because she's and I reached out to her and she was very helpful. Uh, she wasn't my treater. But uh, I had to understand my own journey as well. It's, it's a very, not very few people talk about body dysmorphic disorder. They'll talk about body dysmorphic and you'll see celebrities, oh, I'm body dysmorphic. That's not a diagnosis. Right. Um, before the shaming in school and the bullying, did you have some struggles with your body image? Do you think that uh, the images of celebrities, let's say, or sports or athletes on TV affected the way you felt about your body? Uh, I don't remember that uh, necessarily. I had I dealt with loneliness and depression as a teenager. I felt very alone. So I think I had the, uh, and I felt I wasn't lovable, but I don't think I associated it with body image until really the fat shaming and the bullying started. Uh, I just, I was a very shy and withdrawn uh, child. And I think this all created kind of the perfect storm. Right. I, I hear you as well. I can relate to that. When we talk about eating and overeating, obviously you had to eat a fair amount to gain that weight. Did you hide your eating from other people? Uh, no, no, I didn't. I ate at home and uh, I felt shame because of the things people said to me. But what do you do when you feel shame? Uh, you, you quell it. Uh, some people, for me, I quelled it by eating more, right? To, because eating quelled the, the, the feelings of shame. And, and, then, and, and it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? Because then it you, is. get, uh, you get bullied and you feel more shameful. So you quell it by eating more. And, well, uh, and that's why I say I can relate because um, I was also shamed by my mother um, about my weight. I was the heaviest of our four siblings. And all the time she would question, what am I putting in my mouth and why am I eating that? So what I did is I would stash some nice snacks in a closet upstairs or under the bed. And then I would eat to comfort myself. Yeah, I don't have memories of that. Uh, but I, I, but uh, 
I explore my childhood all the time and uh, who knows, maybe I'll, 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 those will be able to, I mean, I'm 60 years old. It's harder to think back then, but uh, I, I remember the more traumatic episodes. Well, I want to talk about your success as an attorney, as an author. Um, these are pretty major accomplishments considering, you know, your feelings about self and when did you decide a to become a lawyer my decision to become a lawyer had nothing to do with wanting to be a lawyer at the time i was in penn state i was a criminal justice major i actually wanted to be a police officer but uh i was i was at that time i was also an alcoholic i also had uh exercise believe me as well which is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. Something I would consider my biggest recovery challenge today, my relationship with food and exercise. But uh, I was looking for something. I heard some kids talking about going to law school and it occurred to me that I could stay in law school three years, three years and continue to uh, hide my eating disorder, continue to run excessive distances. And, uh, and drink and because those had become my security blanket to get through moment to moment. I wasn't thinking of three years down the road or six years down the road. I was thinking of just surviving moment to moment with my disorders that I owned, no one knew about. And I could retain private ownership if I stayed in school another three years. Not a good reason for going to law school, but that's why I went. Not a good reason. Um, you talk about, or we mentioned in the intro, you also um, are recovering from cocaine addiction, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. When did you go to the, into cocaine and what was sort of your thinking behind that? Uh, I used my first line of cocaine in a bathroom in a hotel in Dallas, Texas in the summer of 1987. And it was really related to uh, my feelings of shame and self-loathing and shyness. And I hated, there was not a moment prior to that that I remembered loving myself in my life. And I did a line of cocaine at the urging of a friend. He said, this will make you feel great. And I looked in the mirror and for the first time in my life, guess what? I love myself. Wow. This overpowering feeling of self-love after swept in after 26 years of uh, whatever I was at that time, 25, 26 years of shame and self-loathing and self-hatred. So uh, yeah, I wanted that feeling again and again and again. And so I quickly became both psychologically and addicted and physically dependent on cocaine. So like most alcoholics or drug addiction, addicted individuals, was there a rock bottom for you before you started to improve? Yes, uh, that was the uh, Easter weekend, 2007. I had been dating someone who knew nothing about my problems for about a year, and we moved in together. And uh, I was still successfully able to hide it, although that was getting tougher and tougher because I was a mess. I was, I, I was really near the bottom. And she went away for the weekend. And I went out, and the next thing I knew was two days later. I was in bed. Wow. There was cocaine all over my bedroom. There was black market Xanax, uh, which I was taking because I was using cocaine all night and sleeping through the day. Hard to be a competent practicing lawyer when you're doing that. And so uh, I lost my legal career as well. But uh, she comes home. I had had a two-day uh, blackout, alcohol and drug-induced blackout. And she's looking down at me, probably wondering if she walked in the right house. <laughs> and right. I'm trying to think of what lie I can tell to explain this law and order style orgy of evidence that I might not be the person I protected my, portrayed myself to be. And uh, all I could think of was to tell her to take me to this local psychiatric hospital, which I had been to in 2005 after I decided to end my life by suicide. So it wasn't mm. in, it, 
it wasn't my first trip there. And she didn't know anything about that either. So she took me down and we're standing in the parking lot waiting to intake. And a few things occurred to me standing in that parking lot. One, there wouldn't be a third trip because I'd be dead. Mm-hmm. Two, she was going to leave me and she didn't leave me. She stood by me wow. while, I rebuilt, while I rebuilt a broken trust. Uh, we dated for 10 years while I found recovery and we've been, we'll be married now going on five years coming up. So wow. I, that's not, I, amazing uh, for both of you to, to do that. I commend you. I commend her. Um, it's nice that you had someone by your side. What do you yes. think would have happened if you didn't have her in your life? Uh, I don't know. I don't like to, I don't like to uh, figure, you know, try to do revisionist recovery. Gotcha. Because uh, what happened is the path that got me here talking to you, right? Going on right. 14 and a half years. But the third thing I thought about in that parking lot was my father. Mm-hmm. My father, who was a, uh, the greatest generation, fought in World War II in the Pacific, uh, fought in Korea. He and his brother, older brother, uh, fixed cars in Pittsburgh from the end of the Korean War uh, till his brother passed in 99. And he would, my father, like me, was the middle of three boys. And he had a close relationship with his two brothers. And here's what he used to say to Mark, Jeff, and I, my two brothers growing up. He'd say, guys, whatever you do in life, wherever you go, always stay in touch with your brother. Always make sure your brothers know you love them. Pick up that phone and find out how they're doing. This was the relationship he had with his brothers. He was passing on a gift to me, right, that a lot of people don't have. It's a privilege. Absolutely, yep. And I thought about that. And... I didn't want to lose my family. I wasn't losing their love, but I was alienating them and struggling with addiction and not being willing to help myself because families get frustrated and they distance. And so that was the final thing. I I just knew in my heart that I was in danger of really finally crossing into Neverland with my family. And if you want to know how that gift stuck, Hmm. all all these decades later, 1,200 miles from Pittsburgh in Dallas, Texas. Mark, Jeff, and I live walking distance to each other. Wow. That's and my, amazing. And my father, until he passed three years ago, lived across the street from me. Hmm. That is very unusual and kind of inspiring. Um, I want to talk about family. How did your family feel about you writing your book? Uh, the, the first book, Shattered Image, uh, which really delved into my relationship with my mom. I cleared it with her. And so uh, they were fine. And, and they were very supportive. And they're always very supportive. You have to remember, the, these books, there is a difference between salacious and messages, messaging, right? Right. So all of my books, uh, the addicted lawyer, well, the, the addicted lawyer uh, was really my journey. I, I don't, it really didn't, uh, it wasn't about getting into uh, calling out family for anything. Uh, so they, they were all very supportive. I, it wasn't salacious in any way. Now, it, the addicted lawyer also talked about uh, my three failed marriages, also failing, uh, all failing because I was hiding drug and alcohol problems. And so, uh, but I also, I wasn't, it, it also didn't, wasn't accusatory or anything with my ex-wives. So it was, I always say that I am only an expert in my journey, right? Right. I can only talk about my journey from my perspective. People 
ask me, well, what did, what did your brothers think of this or that? I said, you have to ask them, right? I don't try to put my journey into their heads, but I can tell you they have been hugely supported. My brother Mark's quote is on the front, of, is on my book uh, about resilience on the front of my book. Right. Um, was writing the book therapeutic? The first book, Shattered Image? Yes, the, the, the first book was a journey in uh, cathar catharsis, as I think many first self many uh, self help memoirs are, many addiction memoirs are. Uh, it wasn't about helping anyone but me. It was getting at the anger out, the pain out, and I found out though that it did help people because there were a lot of males struggling with uh, body image issues and eating disorders, and I get emails all the time saying thank you for your book. I thought I was the only one, and that was now we're going on a long time ago when I wrote that. Uh, the addictive lawyer I knew was something that was needed in the legal profession uh, because there was very little written at the time. So that was a different thought process. And of course, the ambulance chaser is fiction. So, that yeah, so is let's, a, uh, let's talk about the ambulance chaser. Uh, tell the audience what it's about. Um, I know we talked in the preliminary interview and it sounds like a great book. Yeah, the ambulance chaser is about a lawyer, Jason Feldman, a Pittsburgh lawyer who is a, a personal injury lawyer who was accused of the murder of a high school classmate 30 years prior after her remains are discovered. And he is arrested and he goes on the run, becomes a fugitive of je from justice in an effort to find the one person who can prove his innocence and save the life of his abducted son. There's a lot of me and Jason, the protagonist, Jason. Jason struggles with addiction. Uh, he, his only friend is his cat. <laughs> He, he's struggling through relationships. And I think that's true with anybody who writes fiction. There are aspects of people throughout your life that you meet. Nobody is any one person, right? right. You have to create characters. You're creating characters. So, But there's a little bit of me and Jason. But you write what you know. That's what they say about the, the good writers. Yeah, you write what you know. And, uh, and there's, I, I believe there are only, somebody can correct me on this, but I believe there, there are only eight or nine plots in the world. right? Whatever you read, there is nothing new. Whenever you read fiction, it's going to be one of eight or nine plots. And so it's about creating interesting story, uh, interesting and fun characters. And I think I've done that. I hope I've done that. This is my first effort. And I assume there'll be more? Uh, I hope so. I hope so. The Ambulance Chasers, do, it, it's caught on and it's, uh, it's doing better than I could have ever expected in pre-order. So uh, I'm hoping there will be another one. Uh, Jason's Adventures will continue. Is there anybody in the legal field that you look up to? In the legal field, I, I look up a lot of people. It's not so much in the legal field. I look, I could go on and on, but I look up to a lot of people in the recovery world. Okay, because such as? Where, uh, uh, oh man, Ryan Hampton, uh, a guy named Ryan Hampton's one of my recovery heroes in the opioid world uh, with the opioid crisis. Uh, he's one guy I look up to. He has a great book that just came out. And I could go on and on. But uh, the people I look up to are my brothers. You want to ask about, I know that's cliche-ish, cliche but the, my heroes uh, are my, my uh, now passed on father and my two brothers, Mark and Jeff. What is and my, the... You know, and my wife, and, uh, right. too. And uh, they're, they're my support circle. What is the best uh, advice anyone has ever given you about uh, your life, about life in general. My father said, uh, today, is as you, today is as young as you will ever be, live like it. Live like it. And it took me for a long time to get that way. 
And what, what advice would you have for someone else who is struggling with an eating disorder? That, uh, shame, that shame is normal. Shame is a natural body response. It's a natural defense mechanism. I always cringe when people say there's no reason to feel shame because whatever the reason doesn't matter. Shame is a normal body response. Uh, you are not alone. You are enough. I get it. Reach out to somebody because somebody wants to help you. Reach out and take that first scary step. And it is scary, but my eating disorder recovery has been so worth it. Well, we are just about out of time. I think that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and sharing your personal journey. I'm looking forward to reading The Ambulance Chaser because I love legal thrillers. Um, and I'm also from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, what so, part? Uh, Monroeville. Oh, sure. Yes, of course. Yes, I'm from Mount Lebanon. Yeah, we're we're, we're, we're neighbors. Close. More. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was. I moved, as well, I say, when I was just buried by the snow. When they couldn't find me anymore, we had to leave. <laughs> well, my uh, a lot of my family's from Squirrel Hill, which is closer to Monroeville. Yep. Yep. Towards the east. All right. Well, thank you again, Brian, for our audience to learn more about body dysphoria. And find support. Disorder. Correct. You can go online to bddfoundation.org. If you have thoughts of suicide, confidential help is available for free at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Call 1-800-273-8255. The line is available 24 hours every day. And please visit our website, speakingcandidlywithcandice.com, and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Remember, every cloud has a silver lining.